0: Promotion Man, the true backstories of the most iconic bands in the world, told by Fred Myers and interviewed by me, L.A. Lloyd. Get involved and interact on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You'll find the links at promotion-man.com. That's promotion-man.com. Download the weekly Promotion Man podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. Were it's every day, boys.
1: It's 9:30. Were,
2: were you up all night doing blow like the old days? <laughs> yeah,
1: that's what I was doing. <laughs> you know what did I do? I uh, I think I I fell asleep to the crown. <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, everybody talks about that show. I'm going to have to get on board. Yeah. Oh, it's
1: awesome! Are you kidding? That's what
2: everybody says. All right, so pronounce your name last name correctly so I don't fuck it up.
1: Zalisco. Zelisco. Yeah, baby.
2: All right. So that
0: is over there, Fred talking earlier. I'm L.A. Lloyd, <laughs> and we have Chewy here on the controls. And um, this show that we record today will be uh, for the podcast. And then after we do this, we kind of cut up some of the uh, segments. And then we have a radio show that we can add music to go along with some of the conversation. So if there's any songs or something that kind of comes to mind, feel free to drop those in as, you know, ideas or something like that. Sure. As well. So.
1: so, I noticed you were just playing some comfortably numb there.
0: That's right, we were definitely play a little Floyd here. So, do you uh-huh. want to go ahead and start it and yeah, introduce yeah. him? It is La Lloyd, along with Fred Myers and also Chewy, and today we got a great guest. You know, typically we have on promotion man. The promotion men <laughs> promotion and women, mean, yeah. But uh, we decided to broaden our horizons a little bit because, you know, a couple of weeks ago we had Tommy Nas from the album Network on, and I was like, you know, we really need to start doing things like concert promoters and photographers and yeah. you know, people who used to own record stores back in the day, yeah, you know, to kind of talk about that. So today we welcome Danny Zalisco, uh, who's written a book called All Excess and. Dude, I could sit here and look at this book and these photos for like a year and I don't think I would ever get through it all. It is an amazing career you've had.
1: Well, guess what? I had to look through all those pictures for more than a year to end up with what I ended up with. Right. Um it it was it was quite a a great task. Um really wonderful to go through it, but you know, I've been I've been trying to do this for many years. In fact, uh, I found an email recently that had 30 bullet points that are all included in the book that I was trying to figure out, how do I do this? How do I get it together? And finally, I swear to God, I ended up seeing a guy on Shark Tank saying he'd be my ghostwriter. And he was talking specifically to me, I could tell. So, (laughs) So I called him the next day. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about being able to reach almost anybody anytime you want. And um, we made a deal, and he, he got me through the beginning part of it, which the hardest part was getting the stories down.
2: Yeah, getting it started. It's always hard to get something started. Right. But you
1: know, the, the thing that I found was, and I, I could have done this years ago, <laughs> all you got to do is put down that one story you know inside and out, you've told it, a hundred times, write it down
0: right. right, right, and
1: then do another and another, and the next thing you know it triggers everything in between, and you fill in the blanks and and that's eventually what ended up happening, but it still took years. Well, that's
0: great advice for aspiring writers. I know Fred's been trying to work on something. I mean, I've got a, a ton of stories, you know, as a radio guy, but like I said, it's just stepping out there and, and putting the pen to the paper, if you will.
1: Yeah, and see, that, and that's the what happened. The natural thing is you want to write in order, and you want to remember in order, and there is no way. <laughs>
2: you know, it's funny because I had started my career with Van Halen, the debut Van Halen album. So my daughter, who's a wonderful writer, said, Dad, when you write your book, you're going to have to come out the very first sentence, very first paragraph, you just got to grab them by the balls. And that was so much pressure (laughs) that it really stalled me. So what I finally did is just started. And like you said, Danny, once you start, oh my God, then all of a sudden it just started coming like a tidal
1: wave. Just make sure you have a lot of sticky notes around (laughs) 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 because... Because those little ideas pop up like when you least expect it, and you just got to write it down and bang it right there so you don't lose it again. Right.
2: So we have a call. We have some common ground. Um, I had hitchhiked to Phoenix, Arizona, when I was a kid, and it was probably nineteen seventy three, seventy four. Uh huh. And I and I lived like thirty second and a half in McDowell or McDougal or something like that. McDowell. And um there was a club there that had great rock bands but the town was extremely conservative. I think last call was midnight or 11:30 and wow. everyone's off the streets at midnight. Yeah. If you were arrested for having a roach from a joint in your car they could confiscate your car. Wow.
1: Well, you know you got to remember this, this is uh, the Wild West. We were the last state allowed in the Union.
2: Oh, is that right? I never On knew the that.
1: The mainland, yeah, we yeah. were in nineteen twelve. We were the last one, and then the, then Hawaii and Alaska, but they don't count. Right. <laughs> so there was they're, a club. Not part of the mainland. So there was a so.
2: club either called Doo- Dooley's or or Snoopy's. Yeah. Dooley, was...
1: Well, Dooley's was the one that I booked. That was a few miles away from what you're talking about. That was in Tempe.
2: And was there one in Phoenix called Snoopy's then? Do you remember that
1: club? I don't remember Snoopy's.
2: Okay. And I remember Charles Big... Charles
1: Schultz did live here.
2: No. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, really? And then Big Surf. I saw Rod Stewart at Big yep. Surf, and it was so much fun to yep. see a band there.
1: So I Floyd played there. Wow. wow. I didn't do... I, that was before I was promoting. But uh, yeah, those guys were the, there. There's a lot of big shows. There Deep Purple... Um, they 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 had it going on for a while because there there really weren 't any outdoor amphitheaters at that time, and this was not an amphitheater uh These guys just put a stage up on a on a beach with a fake surf machine, yeah. And, <laughs> I, never went, I, I was never there for a show, but uh, I heard it was great. So was. let me
0: ask you, So you, I, I take it you started off booking clubs first, and then, of course, you made the transition to bigger outdoor festivals and stuff like that. Is that kind of the way it went for you, or did you kind of jump into the outdoor festivals pretty early in your career?
1: No, um, there, there really weren't clubs, per se, doing national acts. Uh, all over the country the way they are now. We, in the mid 70s, a lot of clubs were going up and, and the clubs they had were like, you know, the electric factory in Philly or, or the tea party was up in Boston or the Fillmore's on either coast. Right. Those were exceptions rather than the rules. They weren't nightclubs. Um, I ran into this place called Dooley's in Tempe that was just built. It was huge. Uh, you could put a 1,000 people in there without chairs, but they had chairs, so it was about seven fifty eight hundred. and I got in there very early when they first opened and gave them the pitch, you need to have real bands in here, not just these cover bands that people come and dance to. And they uh, said, let's give it a whirl, you know, so one thing led to another. They hired me for 80 bucks a week, <laughs> and uh, my first booking was the Ozark Mountain Daredevils. Nice. Um I love that song when you want if you want to get to heaven um, had to have them. Mm-hmm. And uh the next one was Chuck Berry and it went on from there. Um and by the end of the year they said, "Look, why don't you just book these things, keep the money. We'll take care of, you know, your equipment and all that and we'll keep the bar." Wow. So that's that's why it started out like that and it, I never looked back, but I started doing shows in a couple of bigger places because there weren't any clubs, I didn't know where else to go. And those shows failed, but it gave me the experience I needed to keep going, you know?
2: Well, I find the book really fascinating on a lot of levels because you also got very close to some really famous um, sports figures. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I grew up in Detroit, so Kirk Gibson obviously being a Detroit Tiger, especially for the, um, you know, when they won the 1968 uh, World Series. Right. And then they, he went to on to become a L.A. Dodger. And
0: does the forward in your book? I believe.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. You know, but I mean, and then stories about people like Bill Graham or you being on the set of *Stars Born*. I mean, there's so many fascinating stories. I really hope the listeners go grab your book because it's it's a fabulous book that's got a lot of different um, fascinating
1: stories. Well, you know, you know, when I read through it, every now and then I. I admit I have to give a quick pinch because they are <laughs> they're great names and they are great stories. But when you're in the role of being in this business with all of these fabulous talents and great people and everything, I mean, it really takes on takes on a different kind of a life, but it's still the same life where it's just people moving forward together in, in a similar concern kind of a business. And uh, we, we all kind of support each other, and we all kind of help each other. So it's not like everybody's looking up to everybody or looking for favors. It's like this networking situation that never ends, like a merry-go-round. And you keep you just keep on helping each other as long as they're in the game and as long as you're in the game. You keep moving forward together, and it's for everybody's good.
0: Well, I was just kind of curious, you know, in the world we live today, um, you know, with everything being so corporate and everything, um, would you still you should see me? You, well, the thing I, the question I have is, mm-hmm. say, there's this twenty-something listening to us right now who's right. aspiring to be a concert promoter. Would you tell that person to go for it, or would you say run for the hills?
1: um ultimately run for the hills <laughs> but but I would ask a bunch of questions first because I know what it's like when you get bit by this thing yeah and and you're interested in it and you like for instance after a show somehow you end up backstage with the band and some other people and it's a festive atmosphere right and you're going man this is the greatest I want to do this because you think that's what this is all the time and it really isn't but it is sometimes. There's no question about it. But the thing is, the next day you might, or, or an hour later, you might have to go drive to uh, Oklahoma City and, yeah. and and be on the bus all night and get up and start unloading gear at 7 a.m. Right. So it ain't as much fun when you stay up all night and you have to do that the next <laughs> day. That's how you get canned from for being a loser because you can't keep your stuff together that right. way. Right, right. You know, so you... It's something where if you had enough money, and it doesn't have to be a fortune, but it has to be enough. Yeah. You got to be able to go out and buy some bands and and take care of the business with them, pay the bands, make sure everything gets taken care of. The show happens without a flaw, and you go back to that agent and say, let's do that again. Yeah. And again. So it's just about building
0: that relationship, really. That's
1: exactly what it is. Because with these booking agents, I mean, they might book. Say they book Miley Cyrus, you go, well, that's too big, or I don't really want to do that one. But they book a hundred other bands. So you, you get in with these people, and the next thing you know, you got a great back-and-forth rapport where you can pretty much almost book anybody. If you know how and, and, and they can trust you and you got the dough to do it.
2: Yeah. So I find the cover of your book very fascinating because <laughs> we're in a world where everything is you wire money now. On You know, there's things called Bitcoin. There's all kinds of different ways to transfer money. But right. the cover of the book for the audience that are listening is Danny um, with a fistful of dollars <laughs> and a cardboard box filled with money. <laughs> and what's crazy about that whole scene is when every single person that watched that band paid cash, they all go home, you tell us what happens when the crowd goes home and it's usually the road manager that wants to settle up with you. Is't that correct? How does that uh-huh. all go down?
1: Well, in this particular case, what happened Now with, with this is a Pink Floyd show. And uh, we. This was <laughs> that means 19,
2: more money. Yeah. <laughs> this,
1: this was the 1988 version. Momentary lapse of reason. Oh, I love that concert. And and uh, I had them at this place called Phoenix Municipal Stadium, which isn't far from here, and it's, it, it's not far from your 32nd and McDowell. <clears throat> anyway, it's where the um, Phoenix Giants played for years, and it's uh, um, a uh, ASU plays there now. Anyway, they only had. 2,500 parking spaces because those little minor league parks, they only have grandstands that hold maybe seven or 8,000 people. We had to get 25,000 people in the stadium, which includes 10,000 chairs on the field, and we also ordered some extra uh, remote bleachers in there. So when we got it to 25,000, my security guy comes to me and goes, where are we going to park everybody? He goes, <laughs> he goes give me $10,000 in cash, and I'll go around the neighborhood, and it's kind of an open area, business sort of a place. And, and at the time, went much more wide open than it is now. And he went around, and he rented the lots for two nights from these people. That uh, box and that delivery took place after the second show, and I was at home, and he came in with not one, but two cassette boxes jammed with money that was so tight you, I, I mean, I, I needed a <laughs> screwdriver to ply out the first batch. Wow! And I, it was forty thousand dollars there, and I, I got, I made more money <clears throat> off the parking than I did off the show <laughs> itself. Because so, that was I clean mean, money, care. right? Yeah. I, I don't care what you call it, as long as I can make it. But as far as the band goes, yeah, back at the stadium, we do a settlement with their tour accountant, and and even then, they were starting to wire. The funds after the event, and you figure out what everybody made. But that's that's pretty much how they do it now. They, yeah, and, I, and some some old school guys will make me write a check.
2: So this let's go. Okay let's get into some stories. One of the ones I wanted to start with is Bill Graham. Yeah, uh huh. The infamous Bill Graham, because not only was he a, a pioneer to be a visionary to not only see the value of bringing these bands, especially the bands from Britain, Led Zeppelin, the who and and those bands into these clubs to give them their first tour dates of America. But then he went on to literally start what's considered the merchandising world, because I come from the days when merchandising didn't exist. And it was the record companies that would generate rock and roll t-shirts and it was for the purpose of having that exposure at a record store with the sure. clerks wearing the shirts. Sure. So tell sure. us a little about how that whole Bill Graham thing played out.
1: Um, you know, as a kid, we didn't have the same access to people like him that we do now, and, and what I mean is, you know, they lived where they lived and you lived where you lived, and whatever news that made it by Tree Trunk <laughs> or, or two cans strung together, <laughs> wagon train. Right that that's how we found out about stuff. But <laughs> by the mid '60s to the late '60s, Rolling Stone came around. Yeah, and then as a kid, I found out about Melody Maker and and found a place that actually carried the British music newspaper. And and I, at a very young age, I was studying those things like they're textbooks for a college exam. I mean, I every week got those things. I paid attention to the top 40 stuff and became very literate, you know, in all things music, names of people in bands, producers, you name it, writers. And towards the end of the 60s, as it, as all of it was heating up and, and the Jefferson Airplane had more than one song. And the Doors had more than one song. And there was the Chambers Brothers. And it's a beautiful day. And all these fantastic bands uh, from California. Uh, my attention shifted there from England. And, and there was all this greatness going on in our country. And Bill Graham was at the center of every bit of it by having two venues in New York and, and San Francisco called the Fillmores. Um, I was enamored by just a guy who could run this circus he's like a lion tamer and and (laughs) that's the vibe i got and there's very little you could see about him on video um or anything like that at the time and um i finally got there in 1972 when i graduated from high school 17 year old from chicago and uh I, I moved to Berkeley I really thought I was moving moving I brought my records and my stereo and everything and there was a lot of records believe me <laughs> yeah
2: totally I could you know, get
1: it. And, 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 and a bag of clothes but the records took up all the room right but I mean yeah.
2: him and and Irving azoff have this reputation of being the the just incredible hardasses
1: well Peter you know, grant any, too any, actually anybody anybody that gets into a business that really didn't exist the way it is now. Before, um, I mean, they are pioneers, and they just happen to be the early guys. You don't wake up one morning and say, "I'm going to pioneer this." You get up and go, "What can I do to make some money?" Yeah. What you know, and 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 there was a semblance of the music business promoter wise before we all came along, but it was never like this. It was never organized like this. Now you mentioned. Led Zeppelin and The Who and so forth. There was a guy called Frank Barcelona, oh yeah, in New, York, in New York City. He had a company called Premier Talent, and he was the booking agent. We would call to book a lot of these bands, not all of them, but Frank was so heavy after a while, and he did the Beatles and everybody that he basically kind of drew lines in the in, in, on the map of the country, and and he had a guy here and a guy there. He goes, why don't you take, you know. Bill, you're, why don't you take Seattle and Portland while you're there? I don't know anybody up there. And there's another guy in Denver, and I was in Phoenix. And, and we became their kind of like franchisees or their team, unofficial, of course. Yeah, of course. And, and if we did a good job, and they had so many bands to book, that we would get calls on everybody, whether we knew who they were or not. I can't tell you how many times in my life I've had to, like, cover up the phone and go, who the hell's Nirvana? Because <laughs> you're taking a that. chance. I didn't do that with them, by the way, but I, just for an example.
2: Yeah, of course, and you're yeah. taking a chance. I mean, there's a lot of risk in being a concert promoter.
1: Well, well, you see, while there is a lot of risk at being a concert promoter, when you're the concert promoter for an area, you're getting almost everybody. Not by default, but because you earned it. So what happens is, you might have three shows with Kiss in a coliseum down the street, but the next day you're taking on some new young band and you do 40 people. Right. That's why you do both spectrums you know, uh, of, of the music, because you've got to have those successful guys that were in the same boat as that group doing 40 people five years earlier.
0: Yeah. Well,
1: it, it, it really has to feed itself.
0: One of my favorite things in the book that I I really kind of uh, focused on was the Shep Gordon stories, and uh-huh. you know you've talked to, obviously about the promotion side with Bill being the pioneer, but I got to think you know your relationship with band managers is probably you got a few horror stories and you got a few great stories, but Shep obviously is the one. It's kind of the poster child for just amazing managers.
1: Um, I don't know how to how to explain the difference between him and most everybody else I know. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, be- before, just- before you do though, Alice was our first rock star to be on our podcast and coming from Warner Brothers, we had a lot of Warner Brother um, guests and everybody circled back around to Shep Gordon and said he was one of the best managers ever. So go, now you can go.
1: Well, you know, it's about his style. Um, It's very low-key, very quiet. I've never seen anybody that smokes more pot in my life than him. (laughs) I mean, it's nonstop, and it doesn't do anything to him. You'll never catch him high. Right. I I can't (laughs) explain it, and I'm not even going to try. Sounds like
2: Lloyd. Yeah, right.
1: But his network and his friendships and his Rolodex are so big that, I mean, there's hardly anybody he can't get to within a call or an email or two. And, and I'm kind of the same way only he's got me by about 10 years. Yeah. So I'm going to give him that one. He wins that one.
0: So what, what do you think is his, uh, thing? Like you said, being so laid back, so low key, but obviously he knows how to get shit done backstage and there's probably no bullshit, you know, that he tolerates for a second. right? Yeah.
1: Right. No, not, not much. Um, is his uh his vibe is very calming and you trust him and he 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 helps you make yourself better by by getting into wherever it is you need to be in any given situation. Very few people will ever say a bad word about him the ones that do <laughs> really hate him because I think they're jealous of him i mean yeah. his his attitude is one. Very Hawaiian, very aloha spirit, where, like, almost anybody can come into his house. His house is always open for people. I've never met a more generous guy in my life. I mean, Alice and his whole family and their friends just came and stayed in his guest house next door for a month. And they do that every year, and he loves it, but I know by the time it's over, he's ready to be alone again.
2: Well, tell us a Alice Cooper story, especially since he's living in Phoenix, and
1: is that where you are, too, now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he, he's right down the street from me. He just had his charity golf tournament the other day, and um, he had Tommy Thayer from Kiss there, and Lou Graham from Foreigner, and Asia guys, and, and it was a really fun night, and, about 1200 people outside all spread out all over a golf course driving range it was very pretty um
2: word has Alice, it he bought a uh, a a demon Huh he, word has he he didn't buy just the Hellcat uh Challenger uh he bought the Demon he's really into cars a lot of cars he,
1: He's really into cars he's got a buddy here that um that helps him with those things. And he changes his cars like I change my socks. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> he is a car freak and a half. Detroit. Uh, Alice, Alice loves things. No one can shop like Alice and his wife. <laughs> I mean, every week they send a new trunk of stuff home. Wow. It's it just, that's what he does. He plays golf, he makes music, and he shops. <laughs> that that's my there's an Alice one for you um you know I I think there's nothing like uh when I first met him and and so many things that happened prior to me doing my first show way back in 74 I met them in 73 when they opened the billion dollar babies tour in Tucson just 120 miles from here and Flo and Eddie opened the show who had just left Frank Zappa and um It was destined to be an amazing weekend. And I got invited to do security there. Now I was a little guy. I'm bigger now, but I was a little guy. They put me in front of the stage, and uh, Bill Graham comes running over to me. It's his tour. He comes over to me, opening night, and he goes, Listen, when Alice gets his head cut off, jump over the barricade or you will be killed. (laughs) Wow! He goes, You won't just be crushed. You'll be killed. They'll stomp you to death. So I said, okay, and there comes the blade coming down. <laughs> I turn around, and my eyes opened up, and here's about 9,000 people running at me. Wow. And and I jumped, and <clears throat> we're behind the stage. Now they have these really cool barricades now. They call them stand-plate barricades, and they may even have a new form of a better barricade, but the last time I heard, that was it. Well, this wasn't a stand-plate barricade. It was a wooden <laughs> barricade with with wooden support. So there we were, about eight or ten of us, uh, with our backs to the stage and our legs straight in front of us, off the ground, holding the barricade in place. Or we're dead. Um, and so, <laughs> some, so some giant guy dropped his his, his uh, turquoise bracelet right next to my leg, but it's a foot below my legs, and I'm a little preoccupied. So he gets mad because I won't grab it for him. And I'd had a motorcycle accident the week before, and a giant scab on my arm, they tore it off. Oh, oh, my God. Oh, it was the worst. Blood everywhere. I mean, it was crazy. So they got me out of there right away, and they're taking me to the medic. And as I'm walking to the medic, going around a corner, boom, Bill Graham and Shep, Feist, uh, Gra- uh, Shep Gordon are in a fist fight, and they run me over. <laughs> so, so now, now I'm bleeding out of one arm, and I'm seeing... You know, the little birdies you see in cartoons? Yeah. (laughs) Boom! And uh, uh, they went on for about five or ten minutes really trying to kill each other because Bill threw Alice's dad out of backstage because he wasn't wearing a pass. And Shep took a Jackson to it, and Bill said, boom! You know, and that was that. That just... Off to the races. So after they were done with that, they destroyed all the dressing rooms. I mean, they literally, it was like a movie. They went through every area of the backstage. And here's Alice on stage playing, right? He doesn't know what's going on. And um, they ended up stopping eventually. And both of them kind of winked at me and said, boy, I kicked his ass. <laughs> it, 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 you know, and the way Shep explained he goes, it's a couple of poor kids, poor Jewish kids from New York uh, having it out. He goes, I love Bill. He goes, but sometimes he really makes me mad, and that's how we settle it. Yeah. So another
2: uh, another person from Phoenix is Stevie Nicks, and I found out in your book that you got very close with her father.
1: Yeah. Yeah, he was one of my very, very best friends. I mean, I never called him a mentor, but he was.
2: You can um, right now if you want. You can, you can put that out there.
1: Yeah, I mean, he, I met him uh, – <laughs> I met him by phone in 74. I was trying to book my first show, and it was going to be Buckingham Knicks, which is Lindsey and Stevie. Mm-hmm. They had that great album on Polydor that Keith Olsen produced. Um, but nobody heard it, except here in Phoenix. This was a huge record in Phoenix. Um, uh, Frozen Love and Don't Let Me Down Again. Those there's three songs on the record that were huge. And uh, you can play one of those if you felt like. All right. And... um I had to call Jess Nix up to find out how to book Stevie. She had no manager, and he informed me, and he's always very transparent and never pulled punches. And he said, Stevie's over in L.A., uh, and she's a waitress. And Lindsay sits at home and plays his damn guitar. Um, You know, like they're waiting for something to happen. I said, well, I'm trying to make something happen. He goes, well, bring me the offer, and you know, maybe we can do this. So I had Dan Fogelberg and another guy named Jerry Riopelle, Three of them, each were going to get $1,500. All I had to do was say yes three times. Dan Fogelberg was managed by a very young Irving Azoff then. This is before Irving was Irving. He was still a, a small i instead of a capital I. Yeah. And um, I never pulled the trigger on it. Irving gave me hell about that for years afterwards. Like, you know, we really needed that show. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, when you're booking people at the earlier part of their career, just the mere thought of being able to do a gig and getting hired for one gig is so important in their morale and their confidence and their pocketbooks um you know until it starts rolling those isolated gigs they they can save your life well anyway uh one thing led to another after that I continued promoting and Stevie just a couple of years later right uh, got into Fleetwood Mac. yeah it wasn't that long after that happened i mean It was within a couple years. So Jess opened an amphitheater up here that Stevie was a part of at a place called Legend City. Uh, It was called Compton Terrace, named after a legendary program director here in Phoenix that got killed uh, very quickly and sadly a couple years earlier. And um, that's what started the outdoor scene here in terms of a big amphitheater long before these sheds that amphitheaters that are up all over the place now.
2: What was the capacity of uh, Compton
1: Terrace? Um, I did. The, I, I tested it out for a weekend. They did forty thousand a night for the dead one time. Wow, oh, that's huge. It was huge, and it went on forever. But it wow. felt it felt small by comparison to a lot of other places. And and you know, obviously, not everybody draws forty thousand people. But you could have seven thousand people there, and it's gorgeous. Right. Eight thousand, nine because it wasn't seated. There was just uh, some benches in the very front of the stage area uh, that would be considered reserved seats, and the rest was just wide open, bring a blanket, do whatever, and, and people loved it.
0: So, uh, obviously, we're going to talk about a few more artists, uh, musicians, but the thing that I really loved about the Andrew Dice Clays of the world and and somebody I want you to talk about, Sam Kennison, they kind of brought that whole rock and roll, you know, concert element into comedy. So I wanted you to talk maybe about Sam Kennison in one of the chapters where you said you were the bad influence on him.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I'm only going to accept that we were a good influence on each other. How's that?
0: Yeah, okay, that's fine.
1: We, look, it, it was the 80s. We were having fun Sam had a lot more fun than a lot of people, Yeah, um, and so did I. I mean, we, we, we rocked it, but the main thing was business first, business always. Let's, let's break this guy already, because by the time I met him, he was well-known in the comedy business, but he wasn't known by the concert business. He mm-hmm. wasn't known by the concert market, mm-hmm. and he, like Dice, both made an appearance on Live at Dangerfields on um, on TV with Rodney's TV show from his club in New York. And I happened to see both of those the first time that they ran. And I, I mean, oh, my God, where did these monsters come from? I love them. Yeah. So uh, as soon as I could, uh, in, in Kinison's case, I, I found his man. I knew his manager. He used to manage the kinks of all people. Wow. And, and his agent at the time uh, booked Leon Redbone.
2: Oh, yeah, he was on Warner Brothers. Yeah. So,
1: so there's no reason for, anyway, that's what happened. So I called her up. Uh, it must have been 10 or 11 o'clock at night because it was later there. And she goes, all right, we'll talk tomorrow. We'll book Sam, blah, blah, blah. And the next thing I know, I booked him in the Celebrity Theater, which is 2,600 seats. I guess he's been here before in some of the comedy clubs, but I wasn't aware of him. And uh, we blew it out immediately. It seemed like everybody in the world was watching those Rodney shows, yeah. Because both on him and Dice, it, they exploded off of them the same way that Michael Jackson did at that Grammys thing. Right. It was the same me, same kind of minute for those guys. Wow. Um, and and they turned out to be great friends. I'm still great friends with Dice, uh, and uh, uh, and Sam and I were. Inseparable and and did a lot of really funny things. We we were up one night. Go figure. And <laughs> and uh, I said, why don't we go to Alaska and Hawaii? Deal, book it. We did it. Wow, we, wow. We we didn't do them back to back, but we did them within a few months of it. And and those were some wild weekends. Um,
0: I can only imagine being with Sam in Alaska. I mean, that just oh had to my be god, crazy.
1: We get off the plane, and I had arranged for a limo to pick us up because we didn't know where we were going. There's only one limo in Anchorage at the time. <laughs> and it, and it's,
2: it's a funeral home limo, right. probably. No, 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 even better. It came from the Alaskan Bush Company. <laughs> oh, my God. That is awesome. So uh, guess, where,
1: guess where we were a lot of times. <laughs> There's so many
2: funny stories. I'm going to just quickly mention some of the bands that you talk about. Guns N' Roses, Pink Floyd, Rolling Stones, Alice Cooper. I mean, the stars born. So you were with, um, you know, Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson. And there's and then comedians like Lloyd had just brought up, Sam Kennison and Robin Williams. And Robin Williams. I mean the George book Collins. is just loaded with star power and there's story after story. But the one that I find really amazing is how you were part of the creation of Lollapalooza. Yeah. Uh,
1: well, do you know uh Deb Gill? No. No. She's a promoter uh, friend of mine that li- lives in Austin. Okay. Anyway, she was she was around during. I was asking because I thought that, but it's irrelevant now. Um, we were up again. Uh, a lot of our best work happens at night after shows. We were up just jamming about it. Uh, I think this would have been an eighty-nine or ninety at the latest. Uh, yeah, and and Perry and I were throwing around this idea that he had. Like I want to do a concert different than, you know, a concert where you walk in, sit down, watch show, leave. Right. Um, let, I want to expand on all that. I mean, people. Uh, I want to have unique things you can't find anywhere, and that gave birth to the shopping areas that they have at Lollapalooza and all the vendor tents and all that kind of stuff. He you goes, know, I want food from all over the world. Um, I want a tent. You know, for electronic music, <laughs> all the things that ended up happening. Yeah, he had all of this on his mind. What he couldn't figure out was what to call it. Right. And and at one point he said the word jamboree, and I almost punched him because <laughs> you know I said we're not throwing a Boy Scout troop thing here, bro. <laughs> and and the Lollapalooza thing, it just it like it it came out like at the same time. It was like. We need a Baffo show. I remember Baffo. That didn't work.
2: Baffo. That's cool.
1: You know, but you're thinking. Yeah, we your brain's just come, churning. Yay. We're trying to come up with an old-fashioned word that wouldn't sound dorky today. <laughs> you know, and 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 that's what it turned out to be. And he, uh, the more we said it over and over again, that's it. that's it. That's it. That's it. So you know, they really, really put a lot into that for years. And if you remember that festival closed down for a while. They quit doing it uh, because it really kind of ran out of steam like like so many bands can and do, but so often they get a second breath and they come back stronger than ever. And now Lollapalooza's probably the festival brand in the world.
0: Yeah, I think that's done by C3 here out of yep. Austin. I yeah,
1: here out of Austin, C3 is in control. There's a guy, that, I like the C3 guys. Uh, Charlie Walker and I used to work together for quite a while.
0: So on Lollapalooza, that very first tour in 91, I mean, obviously you had um, Perry. Perry's, Perry's band, and um, but there was bands like Nine Inch Nails, and then you had Butthole Surfers on there, and Susie and the Banshees, and... Um, what was it like putting that lineup together? Because I mean, that is pretty much a diverse lineup to go out with uh, with a major tour like that.
1: Well, see, the the funny thing is uh, about looking back at shows many years later. Now, this would be over three decades later. All of those bands, every one of them, were at the beginning of their career, but they were almost instantly notorious, which is why they Perry put them on that show. Yeah. Um. So he knew, you know, he just knew about them and and he wanted to give them uh, a better way to display what they do instead of being in some seedy club, which everybody did clubs. Everybody likes clubs, but everybody wants to get out of clubs when they're stuck in clubs because out of clubs means more money, more people, and and just better better environments uh, for doing your music. So that was... You know, it's not like that was never done before. People stacking, you know, good names together, mm-hmm. but this was different because it was coming off the '80s when all these bands came out, and they were all kind of infamous and notorious, but not none of them were huge.
2: Right on and the verge grew- of breaking, basically. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. I mean, they were they were definitely there, and they would have broken anyway. But that tour. Set all those bands apart from everybody else who was out there and then everybody wanted to be on Lollapalooza each year and it was a, a very big deal, you know, to get on that show. Um it, it would it would help break your career. I mean Pearl Jam, I think I think this second or third year they were one of the opening acts. Yeah. Yeah. You That's know, how it all starts. There.
2: That's how it all starts, right? So, you had a funny story. Well, I don't know if it was funny, but it was a, a story about Guns N' Roses. Do you want to tell us that story?
1: Which one? Well, there was <laughs> there's, there's a few.
2: There was a few of them. One where. Where you
0: actually asked Axel to wait instead of the fans having to wait three and a half hours for him to decide to come on stage. right. How about
2: that, that? that one was wild. You read that, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah um, we had a show. It was, This is bizarre we had a show on hold in other words i called asu arizona state to use their sun devil football stadium this would have been in the early 90s and i've done shows there before so they know me it's not like i'm calling out of nowhere i don't know what i'm doing and what's this guy talking about guns and roses and they said okay so they held the date for me so in the meantime the agent is booking the rest of the tour so on and so forth Metallica and them are, are co headlining. Great show. Yeah. Um, and this was going to be in the beginning, I believe it was the beginning, oh, the end of August. So school was just starting. And I didn't care. I thought, what a great way to kick off a school year. I mean, these are 18 to 22 year old people, roughly right right in guns and roses wheelhouse how about doing a show in a stadium the actual kids that go to the school are going to like yeah, right? Right. <laughs> right imagine that doesn't fit any better <laughs> go figure so so uh some time took you know place in between i have no contact really with the university there's nothing to talk about yet i'll call you when we're ready i'll call you when it's confirmed and we'll talk about going on sale blah 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 i called them up to do just that and they said sorry Date's not available. Oh, no. Now, meanwhile, Guns N' Roses, their agent, counts on me to have correct information while he goes and, and builds uh, you know, uh, a 60- or 90-day tour. I mean, nothing can go wrong in there. That, that routing has to be in place to move that show like a military from point A to B to C. There's a lot of people on the road. Yeah. So they won't let me talk about it. They, they said the reason was... Uh it was a school night. And I go, it's the ver- it's the first week of school. Yeah, and it's gonna upset our night class students. Oh my god. I said, How many of those are? They said fifteen hundred. I said, Are you guys nuts? <laughs> Whatever happened about doing something for the many rather than the few? I mean, what what are we doing here? You know, uh, we'll give them tickets to the show. It'll be an educational experience. There you go.
2: <laughs> Boy, would it ever.
1: And, and the neighbors, too. We'll get, you know, I mean, we got 70,000 seats. We can fit them. Yeah. Well, anyway, I ended up having to move the show to um, a place called PIR, Phoenix International Raceway. Many people have seen this, this track uh, for NASCAR. It's, a, it's the famous NASCAR track here. So he put the show out there in the infield, and somewhere in the meantime, I don't remember the timing of this because it's a while ago, but James Hetfield got his arm burned, and yeah. they ended up performing with another guitar player. He sang lead. So they went on first, but we're way out on the west side. I don't know if you remember east from west here, but west would be towards Los Angeles, and I'm talking about a good 30 miles west of downtown. And uh, they only had a little mountain road going in and out, and they promised they would open both roads the same way for the ingress, same way for the egress. They didn't do that. So when Metallica was about to go on stage, I think it was at 7 or 7.30, uh, there was a line I think it was 10 miles long.
0: Oh, wow. Wow. I'm out of my
1: mind, you know. (laughs) Uh, And and, and then so we, we made Metallica wait. And uh, they played, and they wait, They waited. They played. There's a break. I go to the manager. I go. We gotta stall. We gotta. We gotta. You know. We got so many more people still trying to get in. And then on top of that, one of the worst parts. There's many bad parts. Um, at any general admission concert on the night of the show, when you have capacity, you're. Th- I mean, for a show like this, I had twenty five thousand something tickets sold in advance. I'm counting on 5,000 more people to come up and buy tickets at the door because back in the day when tickets were 20, 30 bucks or less, you know, uh, you could buy it on the day of the show, which would leave that money in your pocket until the last possible second. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, and it was general admission, so it didn't matter if you bought it the first day it went on sale or the last. Right. All those people who were in line turned around and went home. I I don't think I sold. A hundred tickets at the door that night. Wow. And and everybody finally got in, but I had to go to, I went to the manager. I go, You gotta ask Axel to wait to go on and he, and he goes, He's ready, because I saw him. He's standing outside of his trailer like a boxer, bouncing up and down, throwing fights, shadow boxing, laughing, having a good time, great mood. And I go over to him, I go, I need you to wait an hour. What? <laughs> <laughs> You're asking me to wait. I ask you to wait. Right. I said, no, you don't. You never ask. You just do it. And and uh, it was funny. And he waited. And and it, you know the show came off, but it uh, it was torture.
0: For well, me. I, out of all the shows that I've seen, and I believe me, I've seen a lot. I'll, I'll be sixty this year. I I don't know if this show was before or after that day, but I saw that tour in Pasadena at the Rose Bowl. And there was about 100,000 people. I mean, every celebrity you can imagine from Hollywood was there. It was just crazy. And this is when Axel was really notorious for, you know, coming on three hours late. So basically, since this was in Pasadena, the city said, we don't care if you come on at 1155 at midnight. The sound is off and the lights are up. So he actually came on uh, stage that night at 9 o'clock, literally played for two hours and 59 minutes, and at the very end, he was like, I'm on time tonight, and let me tell you something, Los Angeles, you have been fucking rocked by Guns N' Roses. And he takes his wireless mic and sh- you know just throws it across that football field. The sound guy leaves the sound up, and all you hear is just this slow motion, woof, woof. And I was like, that is the greatest concert I have ever seen to this day. It was amazing. Very nice,
2: man. Well, we are running out of time, and there's so many stories to tell. Do you want to tell a quick Rolling Stone and a quick Pink Floyd uh, story?
1: Uh, Sure. Um, The one one that kind of sticks out with the Stones uh, was the last time I think it was the last time they were here. Um, Let me think. So at at the show, the promoter who who promotes all their dates at the time all over the world, Michael Cole, brings me into their dressing room. And uh, I've only met them a couple times before, but nothing really good. Mick Jagger, he must have cute. him. Mick Jagger comes up to me and knows my name. I'm going, all right, set up. (laughs) <laughs> um, and, and, and we we went for a nice walk down the hallway, and I'll, I'm not really, you know, the, the type. I mean, I like a good picture with somebody. I like having a good time, have a drink with somebody. But I'm not one of these braggart kind of guys. But this one, walking down the hallway, a long hallway, football-length field, uh, with, with Mick arm-in-arm arm arm, going to the stage, I'm going... Somebody get a picture of this, please. Nobody got one. <laughs>
2: I mean, that's incredible. Come yeah, on. You come and on. Mick Jagger. I mean, how
1: awesome I is mean, that? I mean, come on. And he was, and he's, how's your family, Danny?
2: He's a very <laughs> nice man. I mean, he's a very nice man.
1: He's <laughs> it, it, sweet. Um, but what was happening was um, his dad was dying, and we also had a show at the MGM Grand, like uh, around this. Somehow, I had to figure out how to fly Mick back to see his dad one more time, or else he was just going to go back and stay. If, if I couldn't supply a plane, they were going to cancel Vegas. And I go, that seems odd. We've got four million dollars in the box office. Yeah, but the timing sucks. It's his dad. Oh yeah. And, and, and back and forth, back and forth. So we did it. And I said, well. Obviously, that's a show expense. Yeah, but you're paying for it. I go, okay, I'll pay for it. It was two hundred grand.
2: Wow, wow,
1: two hundred grand round trip, uh, Phoenix, London, Vegas. Wow. (laughs) And and And, um, here's what's
2: amazing is you
1: know here's the beautiful thing that went into the cost of the show, and they said as long as we're not paying for it, well, if they didn't put that two hundred grand in there. There would have been ninety percent of that two hundred grand back in their pocket. Right. Right. So anyway, uh, they were cool about it, but it was what they had to do. There was no way he was going to go to Las Vegas and, and pretend to have fun being a rock star while his family's back there all together, you know, mourning the dad.
2: And the crazy thing is, all these scenarios, obstacles, problems—you <laughs> have to find the solution for your your whole world is putting out fires.
1: Right. Every every one of them, or or you're involved in them, you know. Or you're, or you're. Uh, or you're on fire. <laughs> that, sometimes you're the matter that's on fire. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> well, Pink Floyd. I mean, what a great band. And you did mention uh, momentary raps, rhapsodies, Lapse of reason. Yeah. Was that the show he mentioned earlier? I forgot. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, but what do you have a Pink Floyd uh, show you could um, tell or a story you could tell us about the yeah, band? Yeah. Uh,
1: this also happened. And, and, and kind of was part of the stuff the the folklore that that leads into why I decided to do this to begin with and my my 70 71 72 73 they were so rich with with these experiences prior to me becoming a quote unquote sort of somebody in this business and that's what what made me do it Um in the Floyd's case, um, a friends of mine um, forced me to smoke this stuff called tie stick. Right? Oh <laughs> yeah, I love that. I, I, I was trying to be facetious the way I described that. Yeah, because they um, forced you. Forced me. Forced and, you. And and they put on uh, Sisyphus from the Umaguma record, left me laying on my bed and left the room. So there I am, floating above the covers, and my dad comes in. <laughs> what the hell are you doing?
2: That's perfect.
1: So, so, uh, so then I became a believer in Pink Floyd. So, in, at the end of '71, they came through Chicago, played the perfect theater called the Auditorium Theater downtown. Nine hundred people showed up out of four thousand. Uh, 4, they were insane. It was. I'm, I'm, I've been to concerts, but I've never heard or seen anything like this. I mean, they're throwing out Careful With That Axe and Echoes and Adam Hart Mother and One of These Days, no dark side, no nothing. So then, they the next week, they announced another show for April of 72. So I immediately got my tickets. And at the first show, I saw a guy recording the show from the booth on the side, those, those nice opera boxes on the side. I met him, and I bought him another ticket for the new show and asked him if I could have a copy if I paid for his ticket. He said, fine. It was $6. Wow. <laughs> so, so he came, and he recorded that show. And that night, he came over to my friend's house, who had a room called the Floyd Chamber, unbelievable room, voiced the theaters in four corners of a bedroom. Imagine this. Wow. I mean, this, this house could lift off the ground, too. And, and we got to go back and hear the show again. Oh, I forgot to mention the show. The first set Pink Floyd did was a thing called Eclipse, a piece for assorted lunatics, which was later renamed Dark Side of the Moon.
0: Wow. Wow. And
1: so we got the debut of Dark Side in Chicago <laughs> a year before the album came out, and we had it recorded that night
0: wow that's amazing that's That's a great story
1: wow to this day by far the most prized recording that i have and and let me add a little sugar on top (laughs) so i went to the show with a guy named pat leonard who you might be familiar with he was a co-writer on all of madonna's big songs and he also produced uh god not the pros and cons uh the other one um Anyway, they were in London, and they were doing this new album, uh, and this is in the early '90s now. Flash ahead twenty years, I went to high school with Pat Leonard. He went to a, I went to my first Pink Floyd concert with Pat Leonard, who was a we're all Floyd animal freaks, and and he ends up becoming this prolific songwriter. He was an amazing pianist at ten years old. He's a prodigy, so he ends up producing Roger Waters, and they say, why don't you send that tape over before it melts? And, and we'll put it through our brand-new board over here and remix it for you and send it back. So that was
2: Roger Waters telling you that?
1: Yeah, Roger and Pat. Wow. So they send it back to me, and it's even better. There's more separation. There's less hiss, um, and, and it's and it's amazing. I begged Roger, let's put it out and, and solve, like, the Debt of a Third World Nation or something. <laughs> yeah, right. Because because this is the album, this is the sound that nobody's ever heard them do before. They're, they're, I mean, their albums are fantastic, and, and studio quality dusts this completely. It's the rawness of this, which is amazing. It's no chick singers and no guys playing saxophones. It's four guys playing, it's like, They're practicing or something, but there's nothing practice about this. Gilmore never sounded better. The band never sounded better, period, than on this recording.
2: Well, and And, what's amazing about that is you literally have it on tape or on, well, whatever it's on, whatever format today.
1: It's it's on a dat that I transferred to a CD, so so it was easier. But, Uh, you know, these are the kind of things that happened as a teenager prior to throwing down and committing to becoming a promoter, but, I mean, what was I going to do? I got Bill Graham, I got Alice Cooper, I got Pink Floyd, and, and, I mean, I'm I'm interreacting with these things in such a weird way, and I haven't even put on a concert yet. It's like, what choice did I have? <laughs> you know
2: what? And the thing is, I wish we could do another episode, and maybe we should with you because there's... I think we should. Because we only just really scratched the surface, and, again, the book is called All Access...
0: Uh, excess.
2: Oh, I'm sorry. All, excess. All excess, a little play on words. Yeah. There. All excess with occu- dollar symbols. Yeah. Occupation <laughs> concert promoter.
1: You so, know, and if, if you want to add to that, what, through our website, which is called dzplive.com, Yeah. Um. Uh. People, when they order from there, I can sign them, and uh, and, and we send them out in a very hilarious fashion which everybody will love. You can also get it from Amazon because they got a Kindle. Okay. But, but I like the one at the DZP Live because it's more of a landscape size coffee table kind of book. Yeah. It weighs about three pounds, 700 pictures, 350 pages. I'm thinking to myself, gee, why did I stop at 350?
2: <laughs> <laughs> and it comes with a uh, bookmarker in the shape of a concert ticket. Yeah. Which <laughs> right. I thought well, was that's... really a great touch.
1: That's um, and that's a copy of my first show. Oh, that that uh, marker. That's good
0: to know. Well, yeah. dude, I have I've enjoyed talking with you, and like I said, maybe we can get you back. Uh, you know, maybe in a month or so to kind of highlight some more stories. I mean, because like Fred said, we we barely scratched the surface today. But man, you you're great, and we're we're so happy to have you on here to tell these stories.
1: Well, I'm I'm really happy you guys decided to have me on. And look, any anytime uh, I'm, I'm like a just wind me up and I'll go another hour or two with you. It, it, it's not a problem. I mean, when I was writing the book, I wanted to be I wanted to really load it up with as many good stories about as many people who who people who go to concerts are familiar with. Rather than, I mean, I'm kind of like the conduit in this story as opposed to. I didn't want to be a star of it. I wanted to be the guy that introduced you to all my friends and all these business associates and something different about them than you know to begin with. You know, yeah. I didn't want to do the People magazine approach. I didn't want to do a tell-all approach. This is more like, here's what these people are, are really like, and that's maybe get a glimpse as to why their music is so good, because they're cool people, yeah. you know, and, and that has so much to do with what comes out of them. And, and I think some of that needs to be, you know, shared out there and not in a non-sensational way, because to me it's just sensational that I got to do all this and, and, and talk to you guys about it. So I really appreciate it. Well, if I
0: come to Phoenix and you see someone on your door, it's not a stalker, but I just want to meet you in person, <laughs> man, and, and share some more stories with you. You're a great guy, man. I appreciate Stay it. Stay
2: when? Anytime.
0: <laughs> well, okay. thank you.
2: And hang on after we say goodbye to you. Just hang on a minute, too. Okay. So th- thanks again for being on the show.
1: Pleasure
2: to be here, man. Okay. What I wanted to say to you real quickly is um, both Lloyd and I are huge fans of Alice because he's been so sweet to us and he's our first rock star. And we did a specific show for Alice Cooper a couple weeks weeks.
0: Promotion Man, the true stories of the most iconic bands in the world, told by Fred Myers and interviewed by me, L.A. Lloyd. Get involved and interact on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You'll find the links at promotion-man.com. That's promotion-man.com. Download the weekly Promotion Man podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Google Play, or your favorite podcast provider. We appreciate you subscribing and spreading the word, and thanks for listening.